Would you please be, uh, would you please stand with me? <laughs> would you please be standing <laughs> as I read the Lord's word to us from Matthew chapter 1. We're reading verses 18 through 25. This is the Lord's word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the Lord's word. Would you please be seated and let us again ask the Lord's blessing. Again, our Father, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity, for the privilege of hearing your word. We pray that you would bless your servant and make my words faithful and true, uh, that I would mind what is in your word. And I pray that you would bless these, your people, giving them years to hear. We ask that our confidence in the Lord Jesus might grow and be strengthened, that we would not be easily shaken from our foundation in him. Grant your grace now, we pray, and cause the kingdom of Satan great injury. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew writes in order that we might believe upon Jesus Christ. He writes concerning Jesus Christ for this very reason. In fact, the whole of chapter 1 he is focused upon Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he speaks about Christ being the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And as we saw last week in verse 16, that Jesus Christ is the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. And in verse 17, he is the one who has ushered in the perfect kingdom, the seventh seven. He has ushered in the perfect kingdom. The one who is to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, Jesus is the one who is the son of David, who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Matthew is writing in roughly 64, somewhere between 64 and 70 AD. And he is writing to the Jewish populace. He wants them to know that their Messiah in truth, uh, who the Messiah is in truth, and he doesn't want them to sit and wait expectantly for a Messiah of their own imagination. This is why he writes the way he does concerning Jesus Christ. Mind me, uh, mind you friends, that the Jews uh, in this day are not a bad people as concerns the world. Why does Matthew care that they know the Messiah? Well, I'll tell you why. And it's the same reason why you and I need to know the Messiah, because it doesn't matter politically where you stand ultimate it's we're talking about ultimate things here 
You can have your politics be straight. You could be squared away on your morals and your finances. You can have your children uh, under control or married off to respectable folks. But if we miss the truth about Jesus Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing. So with all the things that the Jews had in order, all the things, the morality, the laws that they abided by, the food laws, all these things, why does Matthew focus on who is Jesus Christ? Because you can have all of those things right and miss Jesus Christ and you will have absolutely nothing. And so even in a political year coming up, what is to be the biggest concern that we can have? Friends, listen to me. If a person is born again from above, if a person will put their faith in Jesus Christ, do you not understand that everything else will sort its way out? It will. The reason I fight in public sometimes with legislation is because we promote what's just and right. But don't be deceived. Don't think that legislation is going to change the heart. This is why the church is important, and this is why the gospel being preached is important. Because until people come to face-to-face with Jesus Christ and reckon with their sin, they have no hope. Right? What, is, what does the city look like? I think it was Pound, uh, Poundstone, Donald Poundstone, or Stone? Poundstone. Poundstone. Uh, one of these, these gentlemen said, what does the city look like? where Satan is mayor. There's no bubblegum on the sidewalks. There's no cursing on the, on the playgrounds. Everything is clean, and, and people even go to church. He goes, but they're Christless churches. Morality is a, is a facade for righteousness, and righteousness only comes in Jesus Christ. This is why Matthew would care that the Jews understand who the Messiah is. Because it's not enough to just be moral or be, have an appearance of morality. As important as, as we, we appreciate those things very much, they don't prepare us for heaven. But Christ Jesus does. Now Matthew, um, as was said last week, he makes a claim. Notice there's this pattern, and we touched on it last week in verses 2 through 16. He says, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. And in verse 16, he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. He does not say that Jacob was the father of Joseph and Joseph was the father of Jesus, but rather Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called the Messiah. There is no doubt in my mind that such a statement would not have missed or passed by the Jews who were familiar with God's promises and who were awaiting for their Messiah. And that here in verse 16 is why now we read in verses 18 through 25 about the birth of Jesus Christ. This is what Matthew sets about to explain. How is it uh, that Jesus, who was not the biological son of Joseph, became the legitimate heir to Israel's throne? People would wonder this very thing. Well, if Joseph isn't the biological father of David or of Jesus, how can Jesus inherit this throne? And how can you, Matthew, say that he is the Messiah? You keep telling us we need to believe upon Jesus Christ, that he's the Messiah, but Joseph isn't even the biological father of Jesus himself. How is it, secondly, that he can inhabit the throne forever, as well as be a blessing to all the families on the earth? And furthermore, how is it that he is different than all of the kings and patriarchs 
whoever went before. Have you ever thought about that, friends? Every time there's a king in Israel, everyone's going, ooh, is this the one? Is this the one? Every time there's a king, and what do we find out about every king in Israel? Who's the gold standard, by the way, of kings in Israel? David. David is the gold standard of kings in Israel. And even David, what is he remembered for? His adultery and his murder. And all the kings, as great as they were, not a one of them fit the bill of the Messiah. And yet God himself had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Always pointing forward, always preparing us. There's always there's a Messiah who is yet to come. How is it that this Jesus would be tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was without sin? You see, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic passage of Scripture. These passages are so rich. Matthew's purpose here is to set out to answer these questions so that you and I may know the facts concerning the birth of Jesus Christ and that we might acknowledge him as king and believe upon him as the son of God, the savior of sinners, and live your life for him. Some of the problems that come to us is that, in, especially in the season where we remember the advent, the coming of Christ, we take him for granted. And, I, and it bothers me to some degree because we, we, we say it's, it's acute and we, we put it in the realm of Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and it's, gee, it's a neat story. Kind of makes me feel warm and cozy inside, but we forget the importance of who Jesus Christ is, that he's not here. We don't pull him out of a box full of tinsel on, on the day after Thanksgiving and then put him back in on January 1st. He is to be the central figure in our lives for all of time and all things. So Matthew sets about to lay forward, uh, forth rather, the facts of Jesus' conception and birth. Listen again to verses 18 and 19. And we see here that the Messiah had a lowly and awkward beginning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. She is betrothed. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. This betrothal is a solemn promise in marriage. It's much stronger, uh, a much stronger tie than engagement in our day. It was more serious in binding. It was a pledge of fidelity, of faithfulness. In essence, I will be yours, and I will be yours alone. In a restricted sense, this was essentially the marriage. The custom was that though betrothed or intended for one another, it was considered proper that an interval of time elapsed before husband and wife begin to live together in the same home and begin to partake of the privileges of matrimony, to put it delicately. Usually this time was about a year, so they're intended for each other. Joseph is for Mary. Mary is for Joseph. They're not living in the same house. They're not partaking of merit, marital things yet. And yet, there is a, a great bond there. They are intended for each other. They are essentially married, but they have not consummated their relationships. And I need to say this, that sexual relationships belong in the confines of marriage. 
right? People wonder, well, where's the church? That's where the church stands. Sexual relationships belong in marriage, friends, between one man married to that one woman, period. Anything outside of marriage is fornication, you understand. And so this is, this is what we see between uh, Mary and Joseph. Matthew points out that during this interval of time, this time of fidelity to one another, where they are to keep themselves from one another, and they did, we are told, before they came together, Mary was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You see the dilemma that's starting to form here in the text. Matthew is explaining it. Here we have the virgin's conception. She is a virgin, which means she was a young lady who had never been intimate with a man. She was a virgin. She has not been with another man, as Joseph legitimately supposes, but rather the child forming inside her is the result of the Holy Spirit, as Luke would write in Luke one thirty-five, coming upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. She is pledged to Joseph, but she is carrying a baby. She has not been with Joseph or any other man, but she is pregnant and pregnant outside the bonds of marriage. What is a righteous man supposed to do in a situation like this? Listen to, to Luke 1. 26 through 38. Wonderful passage. We read this. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, listen to this. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. What a sweet young lady Mary is. You know, we don't, we don't um, venerate Mary. We don't pray to her. We don't recognize her as in any way uh, being a co-redemptrix. However, I will say this about Mary. She is a wonderful example of what a Christian should be. A young lady who, this is going to, you understand, what this is going to ruin everything. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make me look bad. What's Joseph supposed to think? This has never happened in the history of the world that a woman should be pregnant and it's not a man. 
that nothing will be impossible for God. He can do what he wants, however he wants. He is the one who spoke all things into existence out of nothing. And yet, and now he has done this. May it be done to me, she says, according to your word. What a lovely servant of the Lord. And what an awful predicament she is in from a worldly standpoint. Pregnant outside of wedlock with another man's, with another's baby. And so we can understand why Joseph uh, acts as he does. He does not know at first whose baby this is. Mary, I thought I knew you. I thought, I thought we had this agreement. We've been, we've been picking out curtains for the mud hut. I don't know. Where you know, we've been picking out these things. We've been working on this. We've been planning for this. And you've gone and done this? He is a righteous man. That means he is devout and pious. He's a man who stands for what is right and who does what is right because he has been made right with the Lord. And what should a righteous, what can, could a righteous man do in a situation like this? He can do one of two things. He can institute a lawsuit against Mary, which historically would have been uh, a stoning by this time in history had been so watered down by the rules of men that it was little more than a public disgrace and scorn. He could have chosen that route. Or Joseph could have divorced Mary and put her aside quietly without getting the law involved. Either way, he does not plan to stay married to the girl who has broken his trust. And Joseph, we are told, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Like Mary, Joseph is a wonderful example of piety for any man or woman. He's doing the will of God and not shaming or wanting to shame sinners. He understands the gist of the law, that is to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And secondly, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. True obedience to God's law is demonstrated in our love for one another. And Joseph, I'm sure, quite heartbroken and hurt, does not want to publicly disgrace Mary for her infidelity, but rather will divorce her quietly and go his own way. My friends, what would this have meant if Joseph had not married Mary? What would it have meant for redemption? What would have, what would have come of all of this? And here in verses 20 through 23, we are given words, Joseph rather, is given words of consolation and hope. Listen to what transpires. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Joseph is mulling all of this around in his head. You can imagine that he was not sleeping easy. He was greatly consternated by what has taken place. The love of his life is pregnant with someone else's baby. And Matthew records this, saying, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. 
God himself sends one of his messengers to Joseph with a message of consolation and hope. He addresses Joseph as son of David. But isn't Joseph the son of Jacob? Why does he say Joseph's son of David? It is because, friends, the angel is announcing something spectacular, something big, something prophetic, uh, of prophetic proportions is about to unfold in this narrative. He says to him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The angel consoles Joseph by letting him know that it is not of another man that Mary has conceived. This conception is not because Mary has been unfaithful or who has broken any kind of vow. The child is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. Matthew records this twice, saying that the baby is from the Holy Spirit. He does not say how it has occurred. I don't understand the hows of a lot of things, and it doesn't make it false. It just proves how small my brain is. And oftentimes we say, this can't happen because I can't conceive of it. That's how we think as humans. But remember, this child is the son of God. And again, as God has spoken all things into existence out of nothing, a virgin birth, what is that for the Almighty? I'm telling you, friends, when you hear these highfalutin theologians start casting dispersions on the word of God, turn them off. Turn them off. Nothing shall be impossible for our God. This is nothing for the Lord, a virgin birth. The conclusion of the matter will be that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He does not say he will save them from Rome. He does not say he will save them from poverty or injustices in this life, but he says he will save them from their sins. That should tell us what is the key problem with humanity today. No doubt, Joseph's sorrow is turned to elation at the unfolding of this news. It will be a boy, and we are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Latin form of the Greek, Jesus, Hellenized form of Jeshua, the contracted form of Jehoshua, or Joshua, meaning Jehovah is salvation. He will certainly save. Remember, as we've been reading during our worship services from the book of Joshua, what do we constantly see and what are we constantly reminded? That Joshua, the leader of the Lord's people, has, has brought them through the troubled waters of the Jordan and he takes them into this land flowing with milk and honey and he delivers his people to rest. After years and years of wilderness wandering, Joshua leads them in to rest in this promised land. That's a picture pointing forward to our Joshua who leads us into our rest. Though we have battled with our sin all our lives and will battle until the day we die, our Jesus, our Joshua has come to deliver us and this is what the angel says. He will save his people from their sins. The angel informs Joseph that this child growing in Mary's womb is the son of God who has come to save his people, a specific group of people not the whole world, but a very specific group, his church, his people. And from their greatest enemy, they will be delivered. He will deliver them from their great foe. He will conquer 
all that which eats away at us like a cancer, our sin. God is doing something magnificent here. This is what Matthew's point is. He's doing something magnificent. He has sent his son into this world to deliver his people out from under the oppression and cruelty of sin and Satan and to deal the death blow to death itself so that we might live to God. And it is not with sword or chariot or tank or gun that he vanquishes the enemy, nor is it with self-help books or self-love books or self-hatred. It is by none of these things that we conquer sin and that our souls are delivered, but it is by the work of Christ alone. Only in Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, is deliverance wrought for God's people. And this is rather narrow by our world standards, isn't it? Rather exclusive, I would say. I don't think Matthew or the angel or God himself would be considered very tolerant by today's society. But do you understand the good news? Is that this is why Jesus Christ came. Sinner, are you struggling? Are you wondering where I can be set free, where I can get rid of this monkey on my back? We look to Jesus Christ. For just as it was true with the Jews, it is true with us today that we have no other hope apart from Jesus Christ. And so this message of consolation has been given to Joseph and also a message of hope. Listen to 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew now refers to this virgin conception and the fact that this child is the product of the Holy Spirit who comes to save his people from their sins. He sees to it, uh, he sees it as a fulfillment of the prophetic word spoken through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years earlier. Uh, Matthew's point is that in Christ Jesus, this prophetic word has its ultimate fulfillment. If you would turn with me over to Isaiah chapter 7. As we read several verses, Matthew, or Isaiah 7, 14, we read this. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6 and 7, we read this. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And then in Isaiah 8, verse 10, we read this. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Matthew has cited, quoted here from Isaiah, from chapter 7, 8, and 9. The history of these verses, it was seven centuries before the time of Christ. Here the throne of Ahaz, king of Judah, was being threatened by a coalition of the king of Israel in the north, Pekah, and the king of Syria, Rezin. And their goal was to destroy David's dynasty and to establish a king of their own choice. 
what would have happened had they succeeded? At this point, God sends Isaiah the prophet to admonish Ahaz to place his trust in the Lord. And he tells Ahaz to ask for a sign from the Lord of the Lord's protecting care. Make it anything. Ask for something in the depths below or in the heights above. And what does wicked Ahaz do? Oh, I could never ask for a sign. Oh, I'm, I'm too pious. I'm too holy to do something like that. This false piety just reeks from Ahaz. He is wicked and he doesn't care what the Lord says. His trust ultimately was in, in Assyria to deliver him from the other kings and kingdoms. God himself then would give a sign. The wicked Ahaz would not ask. God is faithful not to allow his enemies to trounce upon his glory. That's the beauty of this, my friends. We can try all that you want to undo the things of the Lord. And guess what? The kings and kingdoms of this world who oppose the Lord, they lose. 100% of the time, they will always lose. And that's the beauty in this. Even though Ahaz doesn't want to play doesn't want to ask. God says, fine, I'll give you a sign. Watch this. You're wondering whether you can undo my promises. You're wondering if you can undo the throne, the dynasty of David. Think again. I've got this. I'm going to see it through. I am going to fulfill it. And Matthew is saying that this Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God promised he was going to do. And the Jews would do, oh, I recognize that, voice, that verse from Isaiah. I recognize that verse too. Why, that was what was given to Ahaz. And Matthew and God's providence brings all these details together so that we can see that God himself is winning. He's winning. His promise is true. God would give a sign. He is faithful not to allow his enemies to trounce upon his glory. He would not allow David's dynasty to be ended. God will see to it that the enemy does not have the victory, but God himself will come and vanquish the foe, the enemy of God's people. Again, behold, look here, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew to the Jews, he points out, that this Jesus is God incarnate. And it is he who sets upon the throne of David forever, who defeats our great foe and who, um, a foe that is greater than the Romans, um, a foe that is Satan and sin itself. This Jesus is the King of Israel and the Son of God, very God of very God, begotten by the Holy Spirit. This is the one who has come. This is the one upon whom we must believe. And there is no other. You can see that Joseph being torn up because of the pregnancy of Mary is now brought to great peace and consolation. And how do we know that he believes this? Because in the last two verses, 24 and 25, we read this. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Here we see the obedience that true faith demonstrates. 
Joseph knows the truth. And what does he do? He follows. He believes the Lord. He obeys the very words that the Lord has given him to do. Now, I want to ask you this. What's at stake for Joseph? What if he married the wrong girl? What if she's not what the angel has said? You know what I think is beautiful about this? Is that I can think of no greater decision in this life than the person you're going to marry and spend the rest of your days with. The fact that, that he stands up, he gets up, he wakes up, he, he, he did exactly as the angel of the Lord commanded him and he took Mary as his wife. That is one of the greatest assurances that what Joseph was revealed to him in his dreams was true and he believed it and he acted upon it and he lived out his days married to Mary which is a testimony to us that this guy wasn't spinning a story and he wasn't playing games and it's the kind of thing that we hear and we bank on ourselves. You can't take a person's word to heart unless they've got skin in the game. And Joseph threw his whole self in (laughs) to the game. He threw his whole self in so that every Jew and every person who's ever considered Jesus Christ can say, Joseph believed it, and he did it. And notice what he did. He did exactly what the Lord instructed him to do. This is how sure the message is and why you can believe it and not be ashamed or be fearful of being disappointed by it. This is who Jesus Christ is. So let me ask you, is your faith like that of the devil? You believe that God is and you shudder, but you don't. You don't follow him. You don't trust him. Many Christians say they believe upon the Lord, but they have not yet put their confidence in him as their savior. And once you have, do you obey him and the things he has said in his word? Joseph obeyed the very words of the Lord. Many Christians say, I believe, but they don't obey. That's not faith. And many people will obey to a point. But would you follow Jesus Christ to death? Tradition tells us that all of the 12 disciples died a martyr's death, except with the exception of John, who I believe they tried to kill him with oil, and he, he didn't die. <laughs> um, but why would they do this? Why would they lose their lives? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And there was nothing greater for them that they could do and to follow the Lord and no greater privilege for them than to lay their lives down in doing so. And that's the kind of faith that the Lord calls us to when we read these passages and we hear the certainty, the solidness of who Jesus Christ is. My friends, he's not just some miracle worker, some storyteller, some decent man that you just like to hang out with at parties. 
He's the Messiah. He is the living God who has come to save his people. And a God like this is a God who is worth giving all of our lives to in every way. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, again for your word, this record of the birth, the conception, the struggle that Joseph faced, but also your reassurance, your consolation, and the hope that your divine plan would not be undone, that Christ Jesus is the only hope for the sinner. Oh, Father, we pray that you would bless those without faith with faith today, that they would turn to the Lord Jesus and believe. We pray, Father, for the Jew who today is still waiting for some, some of them are still waiting for the Messiah when we have this record and we even have Isaiah's words. Isaiah the prophet who spoke to Israel. We pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes, that they would come and believe upon Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We pray that our faith would be uh, shored up. We ask, Father, that we would not be afraid to follow him even unto death because of who he is. Forgive us for our failings and our weaknesses. We pray, O Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted. And during this season, when the world uh, nods or tips their, their hat to you, we pray, Father, that the gospel would go forward and that many would hear as if even for the first time. Give fresh ears, we pray, and advance your kingdom and your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.